Welcome to the All of Christ for All of Life podcast, where we equip men and women to be faithful in every aspect of life. All right. Well, welcome to John Piper, to Tim Chester. Good to have you here uh, with us. Thank you. Uh, John is the uh, longtime pastor at Bethlehem in Minneapolis and author of many book, books. And Tim is the author of many books, A Meal with Jesus. And I've written a bunch of books, and I think it's because we can't help it. Is that right? <laughs> that's pretty true. Quiet the dogs barking <laughs> in your head. That's right. That's right. Um, uh, so, uh, since we all apparently are looking for outlets to say something, we thought we'd give another out. Thought we'd give another outlet here, and uh, I want to begin by uh, talking about uh, a subject that uh, I know is an interest of yours, and I believe probably is from reading a meal meal with Jesus, uh, an interest of yours, and it certainly is of mine. And I want to talk about the relationship of God's blessing through means and God's blessing immediately you know uh, basically Christians should be all about the knowledge of God how do we know God how do we approach God how, how do we experience God and uh, if uh, and I want to ask uh, begin John by asking you um, how much do you think of knowledge of God as a mediated thing or an immediate thing thing does that make that make sense do you yeah. how, how do you how do you approach the knowledge of god is it through the word through people through prayer how 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 do you cultivate right knowledge of god right right well here's the distinction i would make in terms of immediate and and immediate um second corinthians chapter four verse for the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the knowledge of the glory, light of the gospel. It's knowledge in verse six, the gospel of the glory of, of Christ, who is the image of God. So um, there is a blindness to glory, the glory of the gospel, even when you are reading the mediated truth of the gospel. Right. So the gospel only, and the knowledge of Christ through the gospel, only comes to us mediated. Right. Mediated through proclamation, written word, a preacher, a mom, right. um, a Billy Graham. It comes mediated. And yet, there is more than that going on in that moment, if the Holy Spirit is pleased to do verse 6. Right. The, the God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of God who is the image um, of, in the face of Christ. So Edwards, Edwards has a sermon on that. Okay. And it's called a divine and supernatural light immediately imparted to the soul. And he doesn't mean that you're not reading the Bible when that happens or you're not hearing the gospel when that happens. He means if it doesn't go beyond that and the Holy Spirit touches, like nothing in between, the Holy Spirit touches your soul with a light, an illumination, then you don't know God. You don't know Christ until that happens. And so if, um, when God, in, in verse 6, when God who commanded the light to shine out of darkness, when God was creating the world, there was no mediator. There was, no, there was no mediated anything between God and the world he was creating. God spoke and it was. Yeah. So Paul is there comparing 
regeneration, which is what that is talking about. Who God who commanded light to shine out of darkness has shined in our hearts. So um, Paul is comparing the immediate action of God in creation with the immediate action of God in regeneration. He is, but I can't let it stay as a perfect parallel because 1 Peter 1.23, we are born again through the living and abiding word, through the word, and which he defines verse 25 as this is the gospel. This word is right. the gospel which was preached to you. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. So while faith is a, a new creation, and at that point of regeneration, at that point, it's analogous to out of nothing. Okay. But the analogy, I, I'm thinking off the fly, yeah, on the yeah. fly here. Um, he created the world through Christ. Right. Maybe the gospel, Christ proclaimed, stands now in the right. place of that. Right. Agency. So when God, uh, we can plant and plow and water, those are all means. Right. But when it says God gives the increase, right? God's right. the thing that makes the mystery of growth, right. life and growth happen. So you've got Jacob and Esau in the revival meeting sitting there and they hear the same message, heard the same songs, heard the same gospel invitation. Jacob and Esau are, are responding to the same stimulus but to the one who's perishing it's the aroma of death right. to the other it's the aroma of life right. so the thing that distinguishes um the thing that makes a means blessed is the immediate action of god the blessing of god that's right. is immediate that's right but it's not like he blesses into a void that's right he's blessing something right. like if, a gospel proclamation if esau were sitting in the woods having never heard the gospel and he said the reason I'm not a Christian is because God didn't do an immediate thing on me. That would be an inadequate answer. Right, right. He, he needs to come under the hearing of the gospel because God has ordained that the immediate act of the Holy Spirit happen through the mediation of the gospel okay. preached. I'd like to take that thought and turn to, turn to you, Tim, um, and invite you to chime in or pile in as, as this. Can, or, I, yes, can I come in now? Yes, I, I think it would help us if we thought in more overtly Trinitarian way. Okay. So I, I, I don't think it's true that, I, I mean, it's, it's a, maybe I'm uh, nitpicking, but you know, it, the creation of the world was not unmediated. It's, as John said, it's mediated through Christ. Correct. So the word right. that was spoken was, was the word, Christ. And it right. was through, so, so our experience of God, of his blessing, of the knowledge of God is always mediated through Christ. Right. Um, and so he is objectively the word of God. But at the same time, the Spirit is, if you like, subjectively the Word of God. That is, what, what I mean by that is that not only does, because the problem is not, it's not only that we, we need knowledge of God, but going back to, I think, where you started, John, was, which is that our problem is actually not a lack of knowledge, but, but a, a rebellious heart that, that refuses to uh, receive the knowledge that we have of God. And that is only overcome through the work of the Spirit. So we need both Christ to to bring the knowledge of God as the Word of God, but the Word of God always comes on the breath of God mm -hmm. uh, through the Spirit. Mm -hmm. And so we need the Spirit then uh, to, uh, so that we, so that to, to, um, to warm our cold hearts, to open our blind eyes and so on, so that we, that we receive the truth as the truth, as, as the right. truth from right. God. Right. 
now, now we've just made things really complicated by by talking mediation beneath the mediation you were talking about. Right. You were talking about nature, the heavens are telling the Lord God, Bible, mom, Billy Graham, created, free services, small things. groups, yeah, yeah. and you've taken it down and said, even down here there's mediation. Yeah. Even even below human agency, there's Trinitarian agency. Yeah. That so yeah. so just I think to, right. to distinguish yeah, those okay. two kinds yeah. of conversation here, you I took yeah. you to start maybe I was wrong, yeah. going towards let's talk mediation in terms of what do you, what do you have to yeah. Do you go to church to know God, or do you just go nowhere to know yeah, God? Yeah, this, this is a good point to clarify at the front end so we don't gum ourselves up later. When when I was talking about the creation is unmediated, I, sure. I completely yeah, yeah. agree with you that through Christ everything was made. There's nothing that has sure. been made that was not made through Him. So within the Godhead, there was a mediated creation. But there was no mediation between God and the creation because that itself would have to be part of the creation. Before before God created anything, there wasn't anything yeah. to be a mediator between God and his creation. So when we are puzzling with the mystery of why some people are converted and others not, or what is it, why is this ministry blessed and flourishing, and why is this one languishing, we're, we're inhabiting the created world, and... And we want to see where the intersection is between God and these things. Yep. What is it that makes these things blessed? What, um, and there has to be an immediate blessing from God and as well as something to bless. The things that he blesses are means of grace. Yeah, and I'm, I wasn't trying to sort of jump in and correct people, not at all, but, but I think that that... that um, Christ and Spirit or Word and Spirit actually kind of functions as a criteria, a set of criteria, if you like, right. to answer that question. Why okay. are some of these mediators, mediatory experiences blessed or not blessed? Right. And the criteria you could use is Word and Spirit. Word and Spirit, yes. So um, when the Word, but it has to be the Word and Spirit doing something, not just the Word and Spirit on the premises. Right. Yes. So you yes. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah. So the spirit is omnipresent, and the word yeah, can yeah. be preached in one church, and, yeah. and and you know, hear one man preach, and it's like a flat brainwave. And yeah. Another man preaches, and the whole the room is alive. And what is what what is that? Um, well, it's word and spirit. Yeah. Right. Yeah. But it's the word and spirit deciding to do something, right. and that's what I'm wondering. That's the immediate sure. trigger that yeah. I'm talking about. Right. Um, so is, is your question then, and just go another direction if it's not, what are some of the human um, aspects to this yes. um, media, mediation that might, God might bless more often than if they were absent? Right. If we want to, it's one thing to prepare the altar and chop the wood and cut up the oxen yep. and put it all on the altar and get it right. Yeah. You know, have the right elements on the yeah. altar and, and yeah. do it all according to what the Bible says. That's one thing. Having the fire fall is another thing, right? right? And, yeah. and so what I want to talk about is um, the fire falling, not neglecting or leaving out the importance of the things the Word tells us to do in preparing the altar, doing, doing yeah. the things that the Word commands us mm -hmm. to do. And that's so. That's precisely the thing I wanted to pursue, and and maybe we could 
um, do it by going to the thing I was going to ask you in in your book, A Meal with Jesus, which I thought was a wonderful book. Um, it's cl- it's clear that uh, just in the title, uh, you're yeah. you're going over to have dinner with the Schwartzes and the Millers and the Murphys, and you're calling it a meal with Jesus. Yeah. Right. Uh, so, explain to us how. <laughs> When you're explaining to the five-year-old girl, I thought we were going to have a meal with Jesus. <laughs> <laughs> Why wasn't he there? How, um, was he, how was he there? Yes, I mean, I mean, it's partly it's a meal with Jesus because it, it, it focuses various meals that people had with Jesus quite, lit, quite literally in, as, a, as in, the, in Luke's Gospel. But you're right that I am suggesting that uh, there is something in the way that we eat together, that we experience or we see something of the grace of God, we experience something of Christian community, and actually that becomes a great context for mission. Um, I think it, I, I, I still think it, it comes down to word and spirit. It, it is not that there is something kind of mystically special about meals in, um, in the sense that any meal would do the job as it, in that sense. It is about meals are, that the power of meals is that they embody and express a community and communal relationship. Uh, they do that in any context, I think, in any situation. Whether, But, but for that to be an experience of Christ, it has to be uh, uh, an, a meal with people who are being shaped by God's word and by the, their experience of the gospel and are therefore, in the power of the Spirit, seeking to live that out. So that um, so, so it is partly just the sort of matter-of-fact thing that, that, that when Christians gather... We ought to be, it ought to be very natural for us, not, not in a contrived way, but very natural for us to talk about the Lord Jesus mm-hmm. and that to be part of the conversation. Um, but also be, what, what we're doing is as we show love to one another, a concern for one another, friendship with one another, unity with one another, as we extend that to a lost and broken world, as we invite other people to join us, what we're doing is embodying something of the, the gospel, something of the message of the gospel, of... Um, so I talk about in the book that, you know, one of the striking things about the meals of Jesus, perhaps particularly with the tax collectors, who were for, they were, they were the kind of um, archetypal enemy of God. Not only were they sort of um, cheating the people, but, but more significantly, they were collaborating with the Gentiles who had occupied the promised land, God's holy land, who were defiling the land. And here were these uh, Jews who were collaborating with them. So by by all accounts, they were God's enemies. And what does, what does the Son of Man do when he arrives? He eats, with, he eats with them. He parties with them. And in doing that, he expresses very powerfully, I think, the grace of God that's, that's there in the gospel, that's, that will be there in, in, his, in the great work that he'll do on the cross. And, okay. and we do a mirror version of that. But, but it's, not, it's, not, it's not separate from the gospel. It's not, it's not different from the word that we encounter in the gospel. It's an embodiment of that. Okay, um, let me take, uh, this is uh, a per- pastoral projection 5, 10, 20 years down the road and an observation. I'm not taking issue with anything, sure. anything in your book because I thought it was exegetically undeniable that this is what Jesus came to do and this is how he did it. And moreover, this is what he told us to do. Yeah. It's yeah, not yeah. Just, he didn't just say, I'm a special case and yeah, I yeah. can eat with these people and yeah. then you guys can go back to normal. He he calls us to um, to use food in the way yeah. that he did, in the preparation of, of food, in the way that um, in, in in how he did it. 
what I'm wondering is uh, uh, over the years I've encountered a, a certain personality type that uh, I, I would call better grades through notebook reorganization. You know, uh, <laughs> right. I, I don't want to study. I don't want to actually read. I just want to get everything organized and yes, situated. Okay. I, I want to get my theology of this down. Yeah. And it's, and I've seen this cycle, things cycle through the evangelical subculture yeah. where the latest new thing comes along. Yeah. And sometimes the latest new thing is exquisitely biblical. Yeah. Other times it's just a crazy thing. Yeah. Right. But, but it, the same thing ha- seems to happen to both of these things. And that is people are attracted to it initially because the spirit's there. This is really um, good. Then you have, um, I think Eric Hoffer once said, first a movement, then a business, then a racket. Right. right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so what happens, um, how, how would you advise people who pick up a copy of your book, your book, A Meal with Jesus, 15 years from now, when there are groups that have been doing it for 20 years, they've been doing it for 20 years, and now they're doing it because this is what we do, yeah. not out of direct obedience yeah. to the, yeah. the the command of Christ. Yeah. How how do you would you how would you exhort the people twenty years from now to, to keep it fresh? Yes, I I think, I mean I I do recognise that danger very much. I think and I think it is about word and spirit and you know particularly that so so that actually because I, I think one of the dangers is that that with any group we um, we have our distinctives mm-hmm. and then. And because they're what make us distinctive, those, we tend to sort of focus on those. Right. And then the danger is very quickly the gospel is assumed and the distinctives become the important thing. The front and center thing. The front and center. And then there's a sort of horrible flip, really. And then the gospel becomes marginal. And you can see that in, throughout Christian history. And that's a big danger. And I'm, I'm very keen to, to warn, you know, I, I, I don't want that to happen. I think... Um, in a sense, what I'm trying to do with, with a meal with Jesus is because I can guarantee you that uh, if Christ, unless Christ returns, and certainly, and, and probably if he does as well, we will be eating meals in 15 and 20 years' time. Right. And, and what I'm trying to do actually is not say, here's something new to do, but let's do this in a way that actually is shaped by the gospel. Okay. Does that make sense? Yes. So, so it's not about creating a, uh, an activity that is somehow distinct from the gospel, because we, we're already engaged in that activity. Right. It's about breathing some gospel saturation, saturation into it. Into it. Um, the other thing I would say, though, just to, 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 to reinforce what you're, what you're saying and suggesting is, I think there's a great danger. Let's, if we think about community for a moment, right. which is meals are an expression of community, right. um, that there is a great danger. I see this. It's not quite the um, better grades by... Notebook reorganization. Notebook reorganization. But, but people, maybe almost an opposite version, which is people get very excited about the idea of community. Mm-hmm. And they want to, then they set out to, to do community. Uh, there are a couple of problems with that. One is that um, you do occasionally, I mean, find people who love community but don't particularly like people, <laughs> which is a little bit of a problem. Uh-huh. In other words, community sounds lovely. You know, it's right. all... Or let's all get together, you know, and they have their ideals of the kitchen table or whatever it might yeah. be. But but actually, community always involves real, real people who who tend to be a little bit more, um, a little less amenable to our ideals. Yeah. You know, they're just rather messy and right. complicated. Um, 
But, but the other danger is that, that it b becomes driven by this ideal and it becomes a sort of legalism, really, that, that, that I create this, this standard, which is really my vision of community, and then I start judging you because you don't quite measure up right. to my ideal. You don't do it quite my way. You don't do it quite my way. And, that, so, you know, and actually, as with all these things, and particularly with Christian community, it is actually a, something that is given to us in and through the gospel. And, and there's a danger that the more you focus on community, the more elusive it becomes. Right. Because you're, it becomes this thing that you're trying to create, rather than this gift that is given to us in the gospel. That flows out of the gospel. Which flows out of the gospel. The fact that I'm, we're reconciled to one another in Christ. We have this love for him and for one another that's a product of, of the love that we've been shown in Christ, and so on and so on. One of, one of the things my daughter uh, pointed out to me uh, my daughter Rachel pointed out to to us. We were talking about this. She was uh, thinking about one of her talks for the for the women's conference here at the Grace Agenda. She said the Lord miraculously provided for five thousand people, and but the cleanup was old school. <laughs> there, there was there was no miracle in yes, the cleanup, and it probably takes a wife to spot that. You know. Yeah, the disciples were all given these big garbage sacks and said, you know, here go. And that's one of the things that keeps us centered is that you know, Peter says, uh, practice hospitality without grumbling. Mm -hmm. yeah. Right? Yeah, yeah. Because if you get involved in real people's lives, then you're going to be confronted with yes. ingratitude yeah, yeah. and yeah, yeah. people taking it for granted and that, that sort of thing. Um, I want to uh, ask John, it, this might seem like I'm changing the subject, but I'm not really because I want to bring it back to this issue. But could you talk for a minute about what you believe about revival, about the fire falling. Right? So we're talking about we can lay everything on the altar, uh, Romans 12, present your bodies a living sacrifice. So that means our, the chairs we sit in are an altar, the car we drive in is an altar, the kitchen counter we're preparing a meal for company is an altar. Everything is a living sacrifice and word and spirit. But then we see places where this is not under the blessing of God. This is not flourishing. And then there are times of extraordinary flourishing. Mm -hmm. And I'm wondering if we could, um, if, if I could ask you what your thoughts on revival are, our need for it, and then maybe we can talk about what it would look like if the fire were to fall on our preaching, on our hospitality, on our uh, worship. Well, as with all definitions, you have to ask who's... Whose word am I defining? It's, it's yeah. not a Bible word per right. se. And so I assume what you're asking is what, what's your understanding of historically First Great Awakening, Second Great Awakening, those kinds of things, right. 1904, Korea, around the world. Um, and my understanding is that revival is real and that it is the coming of the Holy Spirit in an extraordinary way on a lot of people, not just one, at the same time, uh, deepening their conviction of the horrors of sin so that they become very serious about sin in their life, in their community, in their church. Uh, a sweet awakening of the preciousness of the gospel and a, a vibrant experience of a sense of forgiveness so that there's rejoicing and then a contagion that seems to move out between right. communities so that a revival is where that happens not just to one person or a dozen, but it happens in churches and in communities and spreads 
spreads out. So that's real. That has happened, and we desperately need it. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't think it can be produced. Right. Finney right. got us off on a bad foot in his measures that said, if you do this and this and this, you will God have is it. committed to giving. I think he's not committed to giving that. He's free. The Holy Spirit gives his gifts as he please. And therefore, what we can do is walk in step with the Spirit, cry out to the Spirit. And I'll, I'll just confess there, I have ambiguities in my life. I asked Ian Murray one time, um, so why is it that the doctor, um, Lloyd-Jones, wouldn't have all-night prayer meetings? Because he really wanted revival. Mm-hmm. Well, if he wants something, why not fast for it, stay up all night and pray for it? And he, he wasn't sure. And he said, we must not despise the day of small things. Mm-hmm. And as a pastor, I went through phases in my life where I would become so convicted that we're not what we ought to be mm-hmm. as a church. We need a corporate awakening far deeper sense of God's greatness and a far greater sense of boldness in witness and far more triumph over the sins of of pride and anger and self-pity and jealousy and mm-hmm. pornography. And, and, and we'd have a season of pursuing God. We'd right. have a few all-night prayer meetings and we'd call for special times of prayer and I'd focus on something like that in the pulpit. And there were always blessings. It, it was never of the scope of mm-hmm. a great awakening. And I wondered at that moment, well, should we have had another all-night prayer meeting? <laughs> yeah. And if you had two, well, maybe three would have done it. And then, and then maybe then four. Then now you're finny. And, well, and, and you're insane. Right. Yeah. I asked my one more illustration. <laughs> my dad lived for revivals. He, he tried to produce them. He was an evangelist, right? Right. But he, I think he was a lover of the sovereignty of God. He knew he couldn't make one happen, but he, he held revivals. Right. Old scheduled revivals, campaigns, Billy Graham campaigns. He's a little Billy Graham. And I said, Daddy, have you ever had the experience, he's with Jesus now, where you got up from your knees knowing God was going to do something extraordinary tonight? Mm -hmm. And he said, about five times. This is like 45 years of ministry. I said, Mm -hmm. for example, he said, I I was young, I was in the ministry, nobody was moving out of their pew, nobody was getting saved, and I stayed up till two in the morning pleading with the Lord, and at 2 a.m., God said, I'll give you five. He said, he didn't talk to me, he didn't talk to me, I just knew it. Mm -hmm. So he gives the invitation at the end, four people walk to the front, closes the service, and he just waits. He knows there's a fifth person coming. (laughs) Guy gets halfway home, comes back, and there's his five. And so I said to him, so why don't you do that all the time? Mm-hmm. And he said, I'd be dead. Mm-hmm. That is his answer. I'd be dead. Right. And, and that's where I am. I'm, I don't know. I don't have any formula, not only for how God sends it, but all the pieces I should put in place, the altar, all, mm-hmm. the, all the wood on the altar and all the preconditions. I know some of them that are in the Bible, but quantitatively, I think we're pretty much left to his leading. And in the, in the meantime, what I, as I look at the broad, broader church, um, I, I see our job is to stack, split and stack hardwood, wood that's going to burn well, but we can't make it burn. The broader church appears to me to be assembling 
big mounds of Kleenex, you know, to, you know, um, and soak it with lighter fluid. And when the fire falls, it's boom, and then yeah. two seconds later, it's done. And it seems that our responsibility is to be as rigorously biblical as we can be. Find all the pieces that we're supposed to lay out before the Lord. Oh, having the stranger in your house—that's you know—that's mm-hmm. that, that's something that was left out. You know, it, when you can look at previous eras of of Christian practice, where there have been great outbreaks of musical reformations, great outbreaks of singing and and that sort of thing, great outbreaks of preaching, and that, that, um, but great outbreaks of having tax collectors over. You know, <laughs> you know, not so, not so much, right? And so, this is something else we ought to put on the altar. But there's a mystery here that that we have to, we can't push God, but we can plead His promises with Him. And right. and there's a flipping point. You were talking about getting the gospel and the results of the gospel flipped around. We we turn into Finney's where we think that if I just push harder then I can make it happen but I'm supposed to I'm supposed I'm called upon to to pray for revival pray right. for reformation right. pray for these things and right. and pray believing yeah I, I'm reading the uh, a little mini autobiography by Hudson Taylor okay so he's on his way to China he's not there yet he's in London and he's experimenting with his newfound zeal for evangelism and there's this hardened sinner in the hospital who everybody has given up on he's an atheist he hates anybody talking to him about jesus and he said i i i I fixed his dressing he's he's a doctor in training i fixed his dressing gently so that he began to have confidence in me and then i i broached the his the issue of his soul and he turned his back to me against the wall and on the last attempt he said, I got to the door. I was going to leave him. I said, he's a hardened sinner. He's not going to turn. And he said, there welled up inside of me such a conviction of his need and my love. I began to weep. And I went over to him. I knelt down and I pled with him to turn to Christ. And the man softened. Now, the lesson he drew, he just ended the chapter with, maybe if we felt more care for souls, more conviction of sin, there'd be more fruit. And I read that and I say, absolutely there would be. There's no doubt in my mind that if I could authentically weep over the person across the table from me and saying, I really want you to be saved Mm -hmm. and feel it, not manufacture it, there would be more fruit. I can see that. And yet, the, the danger there is I'm going to have now a tear method. I mean, that's going to, there's going to be the tear method. We'll write that, write yeah. that down. Pedal harder. Um, but yeah. Which I suppose is a way of saying God is free and revival means a revival in somebody. Right. I, I remember talking to pastors. You, you remember this too. What, 20 years ago, everybody was saying, uh, pray for unity of pastors in cities. Revival don't come until pastors pray together. I said, if pastors pray together, that is revival. <laughs> in other words, but, but seriously, there, there was a point there that we, we think that if we put this and this and this in place, revival will fall, saying, that's it. I mean, if, if I could weep like that, that's revival on this soul right here. If I felt that more often, revival would have come. And the question then is just simply, will it, will it spread? Right. Now let's throw in one other wild card, um, where when when Jesus loved the world to the point of death, 
there's no greater act of love that has ever been performed than Christ going to the cross for us. And it's manifest in the account, in the record that he didn't feel like it. You know, mm-hmm. he, he didn't want to do it. Um, he wasn't pleading or trying to get to the cross. He was trying to get out of it. Uh, and he was searching for any way out. Um, and the Lord, the God denied him. And, and nevertheless, if, if not my will, but your will be done. So Jesus surrenders and submits to the will of God and simply obeys. But he didn't, didn't go to the cross on an emotional high. It, he was a man of sorrows, afflicted with grief. And Hebrews says that for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame. So he had joy in mind. He had the pleasure of God in mind. But he wasn't feeling it right that moment. So we sometimes think that in order to get all the pieces in place, we've got to, we have to have the, the zeal or the fire in us first, rather than maybe perhaps just simple obedience for the sake of simple obedience, where we lay it out before God and we ask God, would you, would you bless these humble things that I've, that, that I've put before you? Like um, going back to having people over, Having uh, hospitality is hard work. Opening your home is is uh, it's uh, exhausting. It can be physically draining. So you do you do all this, and you might uh, a harried housewife might say, "I'm such a Martha. I'm not. I'm not. I'm not like Mary. I'm so you know work so hard, and I fall into bed so tired at the end." So when you do that. You don't feel, am I being a Martha distracted by all these characters? Or is, just, is this just the way it is, where we are imitating Jesus? When, when we imitate Jesus, does that entail simply surrendering what I want? right? And I walk into the place where I, I'm not, it's not a big rush. You know, it's like, mm-hmm. uh, you know, I've sometimes mm-hmm. joked that that Christians need to learn the, that great two-word prayer, which is Geronimo, Amen. <laughs> I'm Lord. I'm not ready. I'm not. You know. <laughs> I'm not ready. I'm not equipped. And you, I know you've had this going to the pulpit. You know. Um, and there are times. There are times when I feel like I've done my work, and I've. Oh, this is a great pre- preaching passage, and this is. Um, and I feel like I'm really going downtown, and then. Not you know nothing, and other times you feel like your tongue's a brick and you're not making sense, and you repeat yourself, and and someone oh that's just transformative, <laughs> you know. Yeah. But that well God does inscrutable things with with this sort of thing. I, I I'm wondering if you could talk for a moment about the hard work of extending yourself in the ways you're talking about in showing hospitality. The, Yes. Uh, what's the question? I think, um, I mean, just to come back to the revival thing, I, um, I grew up in circles that were very strongly reformed with, to the extent that there was quite a hyper-Calvinist edge. Uh, I mean, there was literally a hyper-Calvinist edge to the sort of circles that I was in, which we weren't in, but, but that sort of fed into the culture a little bit. So revival was this so there was just a lot of people who were 
waiting around for revival to happen and um, basically doing nothing in the meantime because what was the point until God came in revival? That was kind of the attitude uh, to which I sort of started to wonder if revival did come, would you notice? Because, you know, we, or would it pass you by? Because, I mean, to use your analogy, unless the wood is stacked, then when mm -hmm. the fire falls, there's nothing for it to burn on. Um, so I, so, uh, but I think the, the fruitfulness and faithfulness is the, uh, is, I know that's a sort of age-old distinction, but mm -hmm. our job is to be faithful. And, and not successful necessarily. Not to, not to be successful, no. And, you know, if you're not being successful, ask some hard questions from time to time. It's not mm -hmm. an excuse to be um, complacent. But at the end of the day, uh, you know, our job is to be, to be faithful to God. And, and whether he blesses that uh, is, is entirely at his discretion. And, and, there, and not, not only is that, I think, a biblical truth, but there are enough stories from church history of people who served for decades and saw nothing. And then even after, perhaps after their death, you know, that, what, that, that, that life of uh, service and sacrifice led to, to great gospel fruitfulness. Um, yes, you're going to say so. Well, it would be a mistake to, I think, cultivate the mindset that your desires and your joy in an act of obedience or a matter of indifference if you just do the right thing. Mm -hmm. I'm responding to your particular right, yeah, question. Yeah. So you're going to have somebody over and you don't feel like it. Mm -hmm. It's a pain in the rear end. But Pastor Doug said this is what our church is going to do. And Jesus, I guess, is, mm. agrees with him. And therefore... <laughs> There's that. <laughs> and so I'm going to do it. Now, I would say that's probably better than not doing it. However, you and I both yeah. know, we know, that's not the ideal. Right. So to move from Jesus, not my will but thine be done, to it doesn't matter whether you want to, is, I think, uh, an oversimplification of biblical motivation. God loves a cheerful giver. Right. But if you don't feel like it, write the check. Because in the writing of the check, as the plate come down, comes down the row, he might fall. Right. He might give it. And that's better. That's better. So, yes, we should, uh, if, if it's going to cost us the, the final life, and you know a nail is going to go through your hand, and a spear is going to go through your side, big thorns are going to penetrate your head. They're going to clobber you with a rod just where it went through your head, going to spit on you, pull your beard. You're okay not to be singing songs. Right. You're okay. Just don't curse God. I've right. watched people die like this. And I've, at their funeral, I've said, they didn't curse God. That right. was their triumph. Mm -hmm. They weren't singing. They were throwing up in their last breath. There was nothing beautiful about it. And they didn't curse God, that was their triumph. But as you move back from the ultimate sacrifice, most of our sacrifices are the 2 Corinthians 9. God loves a cheerful giver. And mm -hmm. it, is, it is 
more blessed to give than to receive. And if you're a begrudging giver because you're supposed to do this and you don't want to do it, the people that are going to be on the receiving end, they're not going to feel loved. These tax collectors and sinners are going to pick up on this pretty quick. This person is doing an act of obedience for his church and he's supposed to have me over and he's not enjoying me at all. That's just not going to, it's not going to cut it with them. It's not going to cut it with God. So I think, yes, to Jesus painful obedience and yes there are those kinds of acts of obedience but but that is not the ideal for 90 percent of what we walk through in this world i don't think well i i i I agree and i agree that the cross it's more complicated than than jesus went to the cross with gritted teeth i think and the image that i sometimes use is if my daughter falls through the ice in the river do i want to jump in Mm-hmm. And the answer is no, because I'm, you know, I have no desire to jump into icy rivers. And but the answer is also at the same time yes, you know, and mm-hmm. I do it without hesitation. That's right. And I think that's what's happening at the cross. Right. Jesus is. Does does he want to, as you, you know, experience the thorns right. and the right, spirit? Right. No, of course not. And, and there's, but, but yes, he goes gladly because he goes to save his people. Well, the joy and that I, was set for the joy that was set yes, before so, him. Yeah. He will. He knew. He knew that uh, he will see the travail of his soul and be satisfied. He knew that that was the end point. But don't you think that the way future joy works in Romans 5, we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God and we rejoice in tribulation, knowing that tribulation works patience and patience, prudence and prudence, hope. The way way hope works there is it makes its way back so that as, as you look to, I can have her alive, my daughter, I can have her alive. Yeah, yeah. She's going to die if I leave her there. I can have her alive and I can, I can feel flowing back into this moment right now, the future of that hug and that life. Right now I feel that and I'm in. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. So it's not simply future out there, nothing here. Right. It's, it's future out there, magnificent and no pain, right. flowing back in to, to change this you used the word gladly. You said yes. he went gladly. And, and that, that's right, I think, down here yeah. while weeping yeah, yeah, yeah. up here. But, all right, and that's me... an act of faith. Right. And, that's, and, that's, and, that's, um, and that's, I think that's what's happened you know, when, when you've got the difficult person coming over for a meal. Right. There's an act of faith there. Well, let me, let's, let's, um, I, I really like how we're pushing it closer to the decision point. I'm thinking of um, Luke 17. This is love, not joy, but I think the principles are the same. Um, Forgiveness. Um, Jesus says if uh, someone sins against you seven times in one day, each time, you know, forgive him from the heart. And, you know, if someone sinned against me... If he repents. Yeah, and he repents each time, you forgive him. Now, it wouldn't be about time three or four in one day that I would begin to suspect that something was wrong with his repentance. (laughs) he, He wasn't dealing... I don't think you're dealing with the root issues, man. You know, but still, my duty is plain that I'm to eat seven times, and then, uh, and then Peter would ask, and then the eighth time I pop him, right? <laughs> no, seventy <laughs> times. <laughs> you know, seventy times seven. Well, the thing that is interesting to me is that the disciples at that point uh, say, "Lord, increase our faith." You know. <laughs> Well, that sounds like a terribly hard thing you just told us to do. And so if you increase our faith, then we'll do it. Then we'll do it. Right. 
And, uh, and then Jesus tells the story about well, what man with a servant coming in from the field, he has him prepare the meal. And yeah. um, you, should, you should say, after you've forgiven a guy seven times in one day, you should say, I'm an unworthy servant. I've only done, I've only done here what I was told to do. Um, there's nothing extraordinary about this. This is ordinary, basic Christianity. Well, it, I, I find the disciples increase our faith really challenging because it seems to me that if there's a, I'm sitting on the couch and I, the decision before me is, do I go to the phone and call that person up to invite them mm. to dinner? Or do I call and make the appointment to go have that difficult conversation or to seek forgiveness or to confront him about his need to seek forgiveness or whatever the thorny thing is, I'm sitting there and I don't want to do it. Right. Right. Mm-hmm. I don't want yeah. to do it. And I know I have to. Right. right? I, I know mm-hmm. I have to. Yeah. I think the dynamic, and I think this is how you, you would harmonize everything that we're all saying here, is my model here is that Jesus didn't feel like it either. But there's a, there's a moment of wrestling. There's the Garden of Gethsemane mm-hmm. moment. There's the moment of wrestling. But then there's the moment of decision. And when you decide, you, and you need to be deciding to be an obedient Christian, not a hypocrite. There's a way to take a meal over to someone that's, right. that's just hypocrisy. Um, and there's a way of doing it where it's under the blessing of God. I should know, if, if I'm sitting on the couch not feeling like it, and I say, Lord, increase my faith, I think God would say, no. <laughs> no, I told you what to do. I told you what to do. You do it. And, uh, and I say, but I should say, okay, I'm going to do it out of obedience, knowing that when I decide and get up to go, I'm under the blessing of God. And the gladness and the, yes. and the joy meets meet you at that point. I think, I think people often pit faith and duty as alternatives. And I think that's a mistake. Right. Because I think there is a form of duty which is a kind of legalistic, self-righteous, grit your teeth, get on with it. Keep up the appearances. Whatever, yeah. Earn, earn, your approval, earn your approval. But there is a form of duty, which is faith saying, I don't feel like this, but if I do it, there will be joy to be found in it. Yeah, you don't, Doug, you don't want, when you say, increase my faith, and God says, no, I've told you what to do, now do it. Um, if increase my faith is an escape hatch that's what I'm talking for about. inactivity. That's what I'm talking then about. Then that's exactly what God will say. But if I were to pray that, what I would mean is we're called upon to do the obedience of faith. Mm-hmm. Mm. Obedience and faith are not alternatives in mm. Pauline obedience. Right. It's the obedience of faith, faith working through love. So if I pray, increase my faith, I mean right now cause me to see you as so completely sufficient that this phone call as much as i don't want to do it is going to result in greater blessedness for them for me for your honor and so cause that faith to push me over the edge right now at that point i just have to do it right (laughs) work out your salvation work out your salvation with fear and trembling right here because he's at work in you so consciously if if the person is waiting i'll wait until he moves my hand onto the phone right that's that's the kind of um immediate 
experience right. he does not promise. Right. This, this volition mm -hmm. that he's given me is in charge of that hand at this moment. Reach for the phone. Reach for the phone. Get the phone, start punching numbers. Hand, obey my <laughs> mind. That, that's, yeah. that's mediation of right. faith. Right. So um, applying the words of Scripture in another context to this, I quite agree that whatever's not a faith is sin. You know, it's, it's got to proceed from faith. And it's, so when I get up off the couch, when I, it's got to be faith, not raw duty, and it's not either or. But I, I remember one time seeing the letterhead of a Christian organization, you know, I think it was a mission organization. And on the letterhead, it was, quote, increase our faith, Luke 17. <laughs> and I thought that was the disciples trying to get out of what Jesus just told them to do. J Jesus just told them to... Um, to forgive this guy seven times. And they said, in effect, we'll do it if you do your part first. Hmm. You know, increase our faith and then we'll think about this. Then we'll see about doing it. Um, it's that uh, blame shifting or excuse shifting that I want to resist, knowing that if I accept God's word, I can only accept it by faith. I can only get up initially by faith. But I should expect the faith and the joy and the blessing to increase as I go, mm. culminating in the destination point of all this, which is the joy that's set before us in our many trials and our small uh, challenges. So um, let, uh, I'd like to um, let me shift the direction. We, uh, we, have, uh, we put out the word that we'd like to take a few questions from the Twitterverse, and we got a number of them, and I wanted to... Um, uh, bring up a few other things, and and but feel free to tie these things in with what we've just been talking about, because I, I think the whole question of the blessing of God resting on everything we do, is relevant to everything we do, <laughs> right? So, um, uh, if we say, well, let's let's put let's compartmentalize what God might do over here, and then we. Uh, do our business. Mm -hmm. you, we don't want to be doing our ecclesiastical business in such a way that if the Holy Spirit left, it'd be 50 years before anybody noticed because, <laughs> because we've got our programs and we've got our, our drill down. Mm -hmm. And I sometimes think that, and this ties in with, uh, I'm about to ask about liturgy and worship. In some highly ornate churches, let's say, you've got so many things going on, so many dazzling things going on, that if the Holy Spirit departs, it could be 500 years before anybody <laughs> notices. And if you had a simple, low church, Puritan clapboard chapel, and the Spirit departs, in 15 minutes, everybody knows. Because, because that's all you had going for you at the, at the time. Everything else is just pretty, pretty slim pickings. Um, so uh, I'd like to talk about... Um, uh, your understanding of worship. I, I, I'd like to frame this by distinguishing high church, low church from high liturgy, low liturgy. Okay, so... You're going to have to help me with that. Okay. One. High church, low church. Uh, a high churchman would be someone who has a very, very high view of the church and the importance of worship and the importance of church. So you could have a, a low liturgy Plymouth Brethren guy who had a very high view of um, a very high view of the gathering of God's people Sunday morning, but the liturgy was very low, and you could have very high liturgy, 
low church views, mm -hmm. you know, very mm -hmm. uh, contemptible views of the church, but you're doing a lot of dress-ups, you know. Mm -hmm. And in, in history, you've got, had this sliding scale where you've had, um, you know, high Anglicans, um, some of the reformers who had a high view of, you know, high liturgy, high church, yeah. you know, that, that sort of thing. With this sliding scale, mm -hmm. would you describe yourself as high church, low church, and high liturgy, low liturgy, mm -hmm. then I'd ask you the same sure, yeah. question. I hope high church, I mean, a, a, a belief in the indispensability of the church now and forever, Okay. rooted in eternity, God's only plan for the world, not university, <laughs> and not our conferences, and and uh, not desiring God, or right. can't impress, or, or books, or, yeah. yeah. It's just, it's yes, high, 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 because I think unique things happen there that don't happen anywhere else. And by there, I mean the, the people gathered intentionally for the worship the, of God, the ordinances of God, the preaching of the Word of God, and the, the mutual exhortation that happens so high. And probably I'd be classified at low liturgy, but that was going to depend on who you compare me with. Yeah. And uh, I have ideas of what I think ought to be in services. I don't put a lot of stock in forms because of my sense of the cultural breadth of the world and that the New Testament is unbelievably absent on form. And I think the reason for that absent is instructions means it, it, it doesn't tell us that it should be at 11 o'clock or that it should be an hour long or that you should have pews or that there should be a sermon at the front or the back. or I mean, just a thousand things that are done in worship services that are not commanded in Scripture in detail. And I think the reason for that is because the Bible is a missionary handbook for all the peoples of the world. Like 16,000 cultures need to use the New Testament. And if the New Testament had a very specific layout of how it should be done, it would not work in most of those mm -hmm. cultures. So I'm low, I'm low when it comes to cultural incarnation of liturgy and pre-tolerant of serious efforts at referential communion with God on Sunday so if, morning. So if um, uh, we were talking about this a little bit bef before at, at lunch, you would uh, your tolerance for various forms would not include batting beach balls around the right, sanctuary. Right, and the reason God is a God of fire and you approach him with a sense of wonder and awe and fear. What, the way I've said it is, um, over the years, I wanted our, our Sunday morning experience to be the Mount of Transfiguration. And we used to have a Sunday evening service or Wednesday night, and I wanted that to be the Mount of Olives because it seemed to me that they fell on their faces and didn't know what to say because of the wonder and the awe of the moment on the mountain. Whereas my guess is when they gathered after a long, hard day in the Mount of Olives, they lay down and they put their hands on their elbow like this, and they asked, Jesus oh. said, how did it go? And they told horrible stories about how good, bad it went. And, and they, they just had a lot of good, solid give and take, and you need that. Mm -hmm. And that can be done worshipfully, but it's going to have a different flavor than the seriousness of, of Sunday morning. So, so, And I just said, where, where in the average life of the American Christian do they get just 60 or 90 minutes of serious reverential communion with the living God. And for most of them, nowhere. Yeah. Nowhere. And so, yeah, I, I want there to be no beach balls on Sunday morning, maybe at a youth retreat or something, but... You know, maybe. <laughs> and, and, well, in, in what, what it seems to me has happened is that as I look at co certain conferences and certain church services, 
the pastors remember how good it was in junior high. <laughs> and that's all they know what to do. Let's make it good again. And, and yeah. do some similar things. And so, so it's you would an say, adolescent phase. In Hebrews it says, let us worship God reverently. Worship God in, in reverence and godly and, fear. Yes. And so um, you've got a great degree of latitude for various forms, liturgies, structures, as long as it's reverent. You can smell and, and, it. You can smell it when you walk into a room and you sense these people are going hard after God. And they might be doing Hillsong, okay? And they might be doing Charles Wesley, or they might be doing some medieval chant. Right. But you, after just a little while, this isn't, they're not playing games here. They really believe they're in the presence of the living God going hard after him. And that, that ties in with our earlier discussion of the presence of God. It's feeling anointed. You, well, what do you th what's your take on this? I, I'm pretty similar, I think. Certainly a high view of church. And I mean, we've, we put a lot of emphasis on the fact that Christian identity is a communal identity. Uh, and we, we, you know, we, we, we are saved when by faith we become part of the people for whom Christ died. No Lone Ranger No Lone Ranger, yeah. It, it's not that the right. church is this kind of um, convenient thing for, to get to, to do on a Sunday morning or a kind of, you know, a way of discipling people that sort of en masse. It is, it is central to God's purposes. He, he is creating a bride for his son. Yeah. And uh, so definitely um, very high on, on the view of church. But again, I guess, I mean, if you came to one of our meetings, you'd probably call it uh, low liturgy, although um, we do try and we try and have some kind of sense of a shape to the meeting, in terms of a call to worship and um, and then a, usually something that's extolling the the person of of God, the character of God, uh, followed by some form of confession, um, and then uh, prayer as we either might be sung, it might be uh, said as we come to. Mm -hmm. To the word, but 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 to some extent, it's it depends on what the theme of the sermon is. So that tends to shape things. Sometimes the confession comes after because that just seems the appropriate way of responding, and so on. So um, we want something that's kind of content rich in a sense. But um, I, I think I think what, the other thing we talk about a lot is wanting to capture the affections. That's what we're trying to do on a Sunday, which is not necessarily emotions. It's different from emotions. Uh, it's not simply a kind of education process. It's actually the truth presented through the sermon, but also sung and uh, and so on, so that people's hearts are captured for the Lord Jesus Christ. Do you have um, in your practice? Do you have a fellowship meal connected to your worship? Well, it's, I, I was going to say actually. I mean, we when we started, we we started meeting in homes. Uh, in, in a home, there were eight of us when we started, and then as we grew, we split into other homes. And I was going to say one thing. I, the number of occasions when I was speaking away at a conference, maybe, and there would be a big band, and the music would be, you know, by by musical standards, terrific. And then I would often I would try and travel home, and it might be that we were meeting on a Sunday evening, and there would be fifteen of us in a room with some person playing the guitar rather badly. But that experience was so much richer than the one I'd experienced. Uh, because people were singing from the heart. But not only were they singing from the heart, but I could look around the room and I could say, I know, I know the week you've had. 
-hmm. and I know how diff or I know how difficult it is for you at work at the moment, and here you are expressing sincerely your love and worship of God. And that that is a very moving experience, mm -hmm. and it and it and it, it warms my heart time and again. So the musical quality might not be high, but there's something about being with God's people as they um, relate to God in the midst of all the mess and difficulties of life and affirm their love for him and their trust in him. That's yeah. just a very powerful experience again and again. But, but just to answer your question, yeah. we, we, we would always have a meal with there. We still have, uh, still sort of the heart of our church life are small groups that meet around a meal but we also now gather on a Sunday and, and there's 200 plus going on there, so no meal. No meal. Do you, um, how often do you uh, celebrate communion? Um, there's, no, there's no set, set but, but I mean, in the, it's normally in the small groups, it's normally part, you know, an extension of the meal. Mm -hmm. And um, so um, probably more often than not in, in terms of those weekly in, gatherings. In the yeah. weekly gatherings. And at Bethlehem, how often did you? Once a month. Once a month in the morning service, or yes. in the, okay. and that it tends to then be significant. Mm -hmm. um, my, my, I'm, I'm going to be eager to to see how you do it, mm -hmm. um, because I've not experienced yet a weekly communion that seems like the way I'd want to do it. <laughs> um, it. It seems after a while to be kind of a addendum. It's just. Uh, jump through the hoops and right. do various logistical things to make it a little slick. Right. And uh, so I, I'll be eager to see. Yeah, it, in fact, the, everything ties in with what we've been talking about. We, we do practice weekly communion and there's 700, 750 people there usually. And so we're, we're, we have to stream, you know, we have it down, what do we do? But then just like everything else, when you, when you, do something and you have it figured out, you know the steps, you want God to meet you there, right? That's the whole, that's the whole point. Mm. Um, you want God to meet you there and you don't want any of your behavior or uh, routine uh, nonchalance to, to grieve the Spirit and keep Him from being there. And it, and it seems to me that what has to, one of the things we do is there's... Um, I have an exhortation at the beginning of every service that's right before the confession of sin. Just a, a, a two-minute exhortation, and we confess our sins. And then there's the message at the heart of the service. And then the last 15 minutes of the service, our service is an hour and a half, so the last 15 minutes is the Lord's Supper. And I give another exhortation uh, directly related to the uh, to the supper, Augustine said, the, there's, "It's not a sacrament without the word. It's, it's word and sacrament together." And so, um, think about what you're doing. You know, it's sort of a call to, um, you know, wake everybody, wake up everybody, um, because it's so easy to right. just yeah. do the drill. But it's easy to right. do the drill listening to the sermons too. But we still preach them. Yeah. You know. Right. And that your your chosen way of making it significant as it must be in the word is significantly dependent on your gifts hmm. not many pastors could do what you do in terms of weekly two-minute significant right. uh, sacrament consummating exhortation um, and so that's another factor to take into account 
certain gifted people do things and establish patterns around their abilities, which you have, that mm. others who attempt to do it just might stumble. <laughs> yes, but <laughs> if I might, yes, I, I take your point. Because then everybody downstream from you is stuck with this thing that you did. But this is true of sermons too. You know, um, you've been preaching powerfully and effectively at Bethlehem for many, many years. And I, under I understand your successor is a gifted and talented man, and he sure needs to be, right? <laughs> because, uh, you know, um, I'm reminded of a, a Spurgeon story where S Spurgeon was lived right on the cusp before people giving invitations to come and receive Christ. And Spurgeon would say something like in his message, if anyone has come under conviction and hearing the word, I will be in my office at 10 o'clock Monday morning. And there was usually a line there. People wanted to talk to him about their souls Monday morning. And then after Spurgeon went on, his successor was preaching. And he his successor introduced uh, giving an invitation right away. And one of the old timers complained to the new guy and said, I, I thought uh, when Spurgeon used to give uh, come and see me Monday morning and didn't do an invitation right away, and Spurgeon's successor said, well, I believe in striking while the iron's hot. And the old guy said, well, when Spurgeon preached, the iron stayed hot till Monday morning. <laughs> <laughs> Can I come in? Because I think there's a, I mean, I agree that I want the communion to be significant. I don't want it to be a routine that we just sort of march our way through. But there's a danger of measuring significance in terms somehow of mood or atmosphere. And... Um, I mean, it's the same with sermons. Not every sermon is, you know, you know, you have those pliable moments where there's just that sense that the congregation are hanging on your word. But not all sermons work like that. And I, th I sometimes use the analogy of it's great to go out for a, a fancy meal at a restaurant, and that's a, or, or to really, you know, put on a nice dinner for somebody. Anniversary dinner. Yeah, that, all yeah. of that kind of thing. And and sometimes conference sermons can be can be like that. Can be the equivalent of that. But actually. Most of us don't live our lives with those kind of meals, and if we did, it wouldn't be good for our health. And actually, a lot of meals are just rather perfunctory, but they actually feed us and keep us going, keep us alive, keep us healthy. And I think, you know, I, I, I know there's a, there's a danger of misunderstanding what I'm saying, but there we go. I, I, still, I think there's a, there, is some, there is a place for the ordinary sermon, the communion that didn't have any kind of great feeling or mood about it, but these are the things that actually do keep us going, right. keep us T healthy. Totally agree with this little qualification. <laughs> <laughs> and then you get to do the same thing again. Exactly. <laughs> you, 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 the, the very thing I was though, eager to though do. The, the everyday meal won't feel like the anniversary. Everybody knows what a rushed and empty everyday meal feels like that could be just ordinary. And it feels... Yeah rushed it feels like people are putting their coats on and didn't really want to be here and so between yes. yeah between so even those meals feed you even if but, you're but, eating over but the that's not, now you're starting but, to sound but that's sacramental <laughs> you're starting to sound like a, um well, and that's my job and that's not a reason that's not a reason to have rushed meals i'm not i'm right. not trying to make a case for having rushed right, meals right. i just want to Find a way back to mediation yeah. again, like where you started. What what yeah. strategies of mediatorial help for yeah. communion yeah, with sure. the living Christ 
in the Lord's Supper do you want to put in place? You want to help people. Right. You don't want to put things that don't help in place. You want to put things that help in place. Yeah. That's all. Well, if, if I could take a, an example, a prototypical example of the rush meal. Is somebody, if I make a throwaway line in a talk that if, if you're eating most of your breakfasts over the sink, you know, you're, yeah, yeah. you know, then there's something wrong with your lifestyle. You yeah, need to, yeah, yeah. you need to slow down, and that, that's. But there's nothing wrong with eating a meal over the sink. If you know, if I get a pastoral call and I've got to, yeah, and I've got to go down to the hospital and I finish my my burrito over the sink, and then, yeah, yeah. there's nothing wrong with eating over the sink, and the food will do me good, or I can, yeah, yeah. Uh, I can, if I'm driving somewhere that I need to be, and Jesus wants me to be there, and I drive through, you get get yeah. lunch and drive through, it. It's um, you can it can still feed you, yep. and we can still step back and say, evaluating our lives overall, we want a yes. uh, we want a better rhythm than yeah. that, right? If we don't want it frenetic all the time, and we don't want um, the Lord's Supper to be touching the base, you know, do you, we did this, did this, did this, and check, and we're we're gonna get out yeah. now. You want people to be there to be fed. That's the that's the whole point. They're thinking about it. They're meditating on it. They're actually worshiping God. Um, a, another question we received, and I think it ties in nicely with um, what we've been talking about. It has to do with Christian hedonism, which the, you are known for promoting. Um, and this question is, is Christian hedonism the only way to live a Christian life? Can one be a good Christian and not have the ideas of Christian hedonism in front of his or her thoughts? Um, interested in your thoughts about that and it seems to me that that has to do with the teleology of our lives what direction are we going and do we want to go there but well if i understand the question it has to do with ideas yeah and you can push on it any way you want you you do not have to ever heard of the term christian hedonism to live a gloriously fruitful successful god-pleasing christian life right um and you don't have to have the ideas in your head, if you mean just theoretical putting the pieces together the way I do. So having said those two right. no's to the question, uh, what I fear that that might conclude that I'm not saying is uh, it doesn't matter whether you obey God loves a cheerful giver. It doesn't matter whether you obey delight yourself in the Lord. Rejoice in the Lord always, I will say. Rejoice in the Lord always. It doesn't matter whether you really believe in His presence, His fullness of joy, at His right hand are pleasures forevermore. It doesn't really matter whether you believe, I will go to God, to God my exceeding joy, or whether you have the experience of, as a, as a deer pants for the water, so my soul pants for you. None of that matters because emotions don't matter. What matters is doing what you're supposed to do. And my whole life has been devoted to saying, what you're supposed to do is enjoy obeying. Mm -hmm. You know, when, when one person said to me, I don't think you should push joy, I think you should push obedience. I said, that's like saying, I don't think you should push apples. I mean, I don't think you should push apple, apples, you should push fruit. <laughs> right. Obedience is doing what he says to do. What he mm -hmm. says to do is delight yourself in the Lord. Now, what I've done, and this is what I think is, is massively essential, what I've done is simply take Edward's insight into Paul and the psalmist that we glorify God by enjoying him, not just and, but by enjoying him, and say, what's at stake 
in your growing up into a sanctified soul that finds more delight in treasuring God than in treasuring money or treasuring sex or treasuring family, more delight in treasuring God, what's at stake there is the glory of God. Hmm. So it, the, the stakes are very high in the way I've tried to, the way I've, I've seen this. And so you don't have to have that idea, but you do need that experience. Okay. You need the experience of treasuring God more than anything. When, when it says all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, the word fall short there is lack, eustereo. And if you try to say, now what in sense do you lack the glory of God if you are sinning? And my answer is you, you, you lack it in the way you just exchanged it back in 123. They exchanged the glory of God for other stuff, especially the image in the mirror. And so when you, when you trade off the glory of God for other treasures, you are putting yourself in a position where what you do is sin. Sin is doing anything that reflects your treasuring anything more than you treasure God. So this is huge for me. I mean, everything relates to this. And so the answer is you, you, you have to be a Christian hedonist to live a life-pleasing God. You don't have to know anything about it. Right. You don't have to buy into the particular terminology you right. use, but you do have to buy into the Pauline well, the, the apostolic and the biblical. pervasive sense of the affections. You said you're after affections. I'd love to hear you talk about that. You're after the affections on Sunday morning, not necessarily the emotions. What, want to flesh that out? Because that sounds really relevant here. Yeah, um, yeah I, th I mean, I think I mean, by affections, I mean love, hope, fear, joy. Uh, those, those are captured for Christ. Now, Emotions, emotions. Then I think are what flow out of those affections being captured. Uh, often they're about affections. It's the interrelation between affections and circumstance that produce emotion. Um, you know, if I love God and I see His name being abused, then then the emotion I feel is anger. Uh, if I uh, if I love God and I see someone become a Christian, then the emotion I feel is elation. But 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 what's really driving all of that? is the affections because emotions can also be unrelated to affections you know i can have certain music will make me feel happy or, right. or not happy right. you know? hmm. right. so um let's pursue this a little further augustine says that uh, in a prayer give um give what you command and command what thou wilt so if god gives what he commands he can command anything and it strikes me that on this if you look at the fruit of the spirit in galatians the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness. These are all works of God in our life. They're the fruit of God. The Spirit's work in our life produces love, produces joy, produces peace. But every last one of those fruits is also a command elsewhere. So um, the, I think, I forget which one of you mentioned that the duty and you didn't like the, the separation of duty and what was it? Faith. Faith. Um, if we obey, if we obey God, then we're obeying the whole command, top to bottom, and the fruit of the spirit is love, and the greatest command is to love God. It's a command. It's a duty. Yeah, yeah. The second great command is to love your neighbor. Well, that's the first fruit of the spirit, the first gift of God, and the first command of God. Then you have love, joy. That's a fruit of the spirit. Rejoice always. I'll say it again. Rejoice. It's a command. Uh, peace. You know, be anxious for nothing. Uh, yeah, yeah. So you've got every, you work your way through mm -hmm. every one of the fruits of the Spirit. So this, everything is a gift of God, mm -hmm. and everything is commanded 
you know, it's it's all commanded. Mm-hmm. So I'm to if I, if I obey over here, expecting God to do His part over there, then I've got a vending machine view of spirituality. I, I'm doing my part, mm-hmm. and I expect my product, mm-hmm. as opposed to obeying, knowing that my obedience will be nothing unless it's offered up okay. to God in Christ and received for the sake of for the sake of Christ. Right. Does that make sense? Right. We did a whole conference two years ago called Act the Miracle based on on that very reality that um, joy in Christ is a miracle. No natural man delights in Christ. They think the cross is foolishness. And so you're commanded to do it, and it's a miracle when it's done. And so I simply said on the basis of Philippians 2, 13, work out your salvation for God is the one who's at work. That means it, it, you don't wait. <laughs> you don't wait. Like, okay, yeah. do your work. I am doing my work. And, <laughs> You first. Do it. No. Yeah, it's not you first, then right. me. It's when I act. So let, let, him, let him who serves serve in the strength that God supplies. You serve. Serve the church. Serve people. Serve your wife. And as you serve her, relying on the strength that God supplies, I am giving you the service. It's a fruit of my like of Paul. My like Paul says in Colossians, to this end I labor, struggling mightily with all his energy. Be strong in the Lord and the strength of his mind. And I think there's another dimension to this, which is those commands, just going back to the correlation between command and fruit, it is that the commands are pursued by going back to the gift, by sort of command and gift. I fulfill the command to to be at peace, to not worry, by going back to the gift. It's not that... I then, at that point, I have to sort of count to 10. You know, when I get anxious, I count to 10, and hopefully that will do the job. What I do is I go back to this, to the God who is sovereign, but is now my Father, who promises to care for me. I go back to that truth. You know, my duty, as it were, is to go back to that truth, to remind myself of that truth, so that when I face that difficult circumstance, I, I face it confident that he is able to care for me and provide for me in that situation. Does that mm-hmm. make sense? Yes. So it's not that, that I've got a, that I'm given this gift and then also somehow kind of over here, sort of slightly separated from that, and now I've got to work hard at mm-hmm. being calm in a difficult situation. Mm-hmm. I'm calm because I can go back to that gift. Yeah. So um, accepting, granting that, agreeing with that, and building on it, take a step further. And this ties into something we, we talked about in our conversation in Minneapolis. In Psalm 115, it, uh, the biblical principle is you become like what you worship. Mm-hmm. Right? You, yeah. you're, you're, uh, and this is positive and negative. So it's true of idolaters. Um, they worship idols that have eyes and see not, noses smell, uh, have noses but smell not, hands that handle not. And then it says those who make them are like unto them. So you become stupid and blind and dumb and 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 so what happens is when you worship blind impersonal processes laws of nature you become blind and impersonal you become like what you worship and we are being transformed from one degree of glory to another as we be, behold the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ and 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 in John says that when we see him we're going to become like him because we're we will see him as he is so this command and duty. So if I'm if I'm uh, joyless and I need to be joyful, or uh, wobbling and I need to be firm, I need to look to Christ. Yes. So I don't look to abstract duties. 
or I don't look to my little Christian book of virtues, or I don't, I don't look to the law, or even to the New Testament that I've managed to read as law. I look to Jesus. So if I look to Jesus as my fulfillment, so Jesus is my love, Jesus is my joy, Jesus is my peace, Jesus is my obedience. So everything comes back to faith that enables me to look to Christ. So if I'm, um, if my, if my prayer is inadequate, well, that's why I prayed in Jesus' name. You know, and yeah. I, I, um, I was going to ask you to tag something on you. We were talking at lunch about a book you're working on on prayer, yeah. and I was struck by something you said along those lines about uh, um, how our prayers are accepted in Jesus the prayer. Yes. Could you say something? Oh, like I, I just, I mean, uh, what I'm, what, one of the, what I, I don't know if it's distinctive, that would be a bold claim, but it's what, one of the key things I want to hit really in that book is that I think we, we often have this talk, this dialogue that prayer is difficult and uh, we all find prayer hard and uh, most people begin their books on prayer by saying, I'm not a great prayer and I find prayer hard. You know, that's, that's the language we use. And I mean, I, I know why, we, why, why people do that, but I think there's a danger with that. What I really want to emphasize in the book is that we are all great prayers because we pray in Christ. Mm-hmm. Or to turn it, sort of flip it around, none of us are great prayers except Christ, but in him all my prayers are, are not, not just adequate, that, if that, that's not it, but, but are a delight to the Father right. because of the delight he has in his Son. And I pray in his Son. Part of just a... a as a side observation, perhaps one of the reasons all those books begin that way is if, if you picked up a book on prayer and the guy said in the forward, you know, I've been doing this for many years and frankly, I'm pretty good at it. <laughs> well, indeed, indeed. <laughs> We'd say, who do you, you know, good Yes, you. <laughs> indeed. All right, so. Um, but, 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 but what that all then communicates is, and I think a lot of, pra- a lot of books on prayers, with their, either with their wonderful stories about amazing prayers that have gone on through the night and then amazing answers, or, or just because they're full of some sort of mystical stuff about how you, you sort of sit quietly and look at a candle or whatever, then some experience will happen. All of those kind of end up conveying this thing that prayer is this difficult exercise that... Um, that you're probably not going to be very good at until you've mastered some kind of technique. Mm-hmm. And that's, that's not the gospel. Yeah. Now, I should add that yes. I have a whole section on why actually it is then we do find prayer hard, because that is the reality for most of us. But, but, but before we get there, and first and foremost, up center's got to be the fact that we have a Father who delights to hear us. We have the Lord Jesus Christ who mediates and makes every prayer acceptable to the Father. And if that, all of that wasn't enough, we have the Holy Spirit to help us. And that's what I think more than anything people need to hear, that, they, that every prayer they offer is a great prayer in Christ. All right. Well, as we uh, bring this in for landing, I'd like to, it turns out, it seems, that the old Sunday school answers are true. God, Jesus, Bible. Right? Pray. <laughs> right. Pray. Good. These things are good. So if everything, we're, if everything that we get flummoxed about, or if we, if we feel like we're in a dry spell, if we feel that our church is languishing, or whatever the presenting problem is, or you're in the middle of an, a, a happening evangelical community where there seems to be what A.W. Tozer would call a lot of froth and activity, uh, but no real substance, 
Tozer once said, if revival means more of what we have happening now, we most emphatically do not need a revival. <laughs> you know, so if, if the revival involves a change or a turning or a blessing, or, um, and it all comes back to looking to Christ, it all comes back to Jesus, it all comes back to Him. Um, ask you, John, and then you, Tim, if, if you could just say a few things about to encourage the people who want to look to Jesus? They want to look to Christ. That you know, we're not talking about persuading a hardened sinner to turn from his path, but a tender-hearted Christian who feels beat up and inadequate and overwhelmed and that sort of thing. How how would you exhort them or encourage them to look to Christ in the middle of their harried, busy lives? How, how, what what do you think the need of the hour is for people yeah. like that. Well, the first thing I want to say, because of something you said 45 seconds ago, of, of, of a lifelong effort in the ministry, I want to say, don't quit. Mm -hmm. Don't quit. I, I can't tell you how many times in my 33 years in the pastorate, I'd, I'd walk through a magazine that say had 50 advertisements about what would solve my problems in the ministry. And I would come away so discouraged, mm -hmm. so discouraged because of all those solutions that I wasn't, I didn't own the books and I didn't own the mm -hmm. seminars and I didn't. And uh, God in his mercy mm -hmm. never let me quit. And right. I just, I mean, there were times I just said, if, if, that's, if that's what you have to do, then I just... Um, Deal I, me out. And so I would say, you know, I would, my exhortation would be pray regularly. I'm talking about pastors especially. Right. Pray regularly, Father, keep me. Now unto him who is able to keep you. I mean, he was blown away. Jude is blown away. To him be glory and honor and dominion because mm -hmm. he kept me. Right. That's the way I feel. He stood by me. So I'd say just stay at it because you know what? It is the basic Sunday school answers. Mm -hmm. if, you, if you're faithful to the book and you're on your knees as, as well as you can and then no one is acceptable in Christ over the book and you feed your people faithfully, that's a good thing. And, and it may fall. To, to, I'll, I'll end with this. So I finished my 33 years and we never had revival. Mm -hmm. Now, a lot of people might say, well, you did mean revival. Little, little things will happen. But... I'd say, not, not the way I measure revival. I'm not hopeless about that. I did stack a lot of wood. Right. And it's still there. Right. And Jason is a good wood stacker and a good prayer. Right. And if it takes 10 years under his ministry for this thing to explode, to make a difference in the Twin Cities like it never happened with me, I would go to my grave thinking, I put some of that wood there. Mm -hmm. So I just I want guys not to quit. I want them to be encouraged to press on and not to feel like there, there's a thing you got to do. If you get it figured out, then it's going to happen. There is a faithfulness and and uh, when you say it's it, it coming back to look at the gospel or look at Jesus, I want to add to that as he is mediated in every sentence of this book. I mm -hmm. fear a reductionism today. Right. A reductionism to gospel and Jesus. That sounds crazy. I can right. reduce to Jesus. He's high right. and low. And yet, if you start peeling away his book and say, we don't need that, we don't need that, we don't we just need Jesus. Red Jesus letter. We're, say, we're red letter Christians. That, that, Jesus is going to say, I don't think I'm the one you're after. 
So very, very simply, I think I survived in the ministry not by a mystical path to Jesus only or gospel only, but by reading this book every day and trying to understand how it all equips a man, makes him fit for every good deed. Uh, speaking of stacked wood and how God uses, God uses time bombs. God uh, delays has delayed reactions. One of the things I've pointed out in our some of our educational work, and as we've been founding schools and everything, is that in the medieval period there was a, a movement, educational movement, that founded schools all over Europe. And the group that led them was uh, the Brethren of the Common Life, and the Brethren of the Common Life established schools all over the place, and they were medieval educational uh, reformers. Thomas Kempis was uh, one of the Brethren of the Common Life, and they had all these schools. And virtually every last one of the reformers graduated from one of those schools. So it was this unsung, nobody's ever heard of, you know, mm-hmm. nobody's ever heard of the guy who led Billy Graham to the Lord, you know. <laughs> nobody's, nobody's heard of the, the precursors of, mm-hmm. of these things, the, the men who split and stacked the wood. And, and then there was this remarkable thing that, uh, where did that come from? Where did that come from? Well, God was doing something beforehand. So thank you. Mm-hmm. Tim, you Yes, uh, three things come to mind. One is just to pick up on what John just said about reading the whole scriptures. I really want to echo that. And again, I mean, I'm, I'm sure you're not saying that, but you know, I think one of the things I fear is that we do have this sort of gospel Jesus focus, which is great, uh, but, but then I, I hear people uh, handling the scriptures in a way that kind of jumps there almost like too quickly, uh, that we get to Jesus and the gospel. And, and what we don't hear is Jesus and the gospel with all the texture that the whole the whole counsel of God brings. Does, does that make sense? Yeah, yeah. That that actually, you know, in I was I was preaching from the other day from uh, to Samuel, and and really what it boiled down to was Jesus died for your sins. That was my message, and the congregation loved it, but which is partly because that's what they love to hear. Why would they not love to hear that? But but it just came with some freshness because it was it was a it was. From took the second text. Samuel. It took to yeah. Second Samuel seriously. Took took the text seriously, and um, so so that's yeah. I mean, I really want it to encourage just people. Jesus, it wasn't just Jesus died for sinners. It was Jesus died for sinners in Second Samuel. Yes, yes, in, and in and, and, and here it is. And I mean, I don't, I don't preach a sermon again, but you know, it wasn't just oh look, here's some really bad, horrible stuff here, but that's okay because Jesus yeah. dies for sinners. It's actually look at, look at how we see the Lord Jesus Christ addressing the issue of sin here yeah. and how he and, is the fulfillment and, of that. And don't muzzle the ox while he's treading out the grain means pay your pastors. <laughs> okay. <Yeah. laughs> In other words, there, there are, yeah. if oh, you're yeah. afraid to make those lessons, if you're afraid to preach on that because there's not enough of a gospel in it, something's wrong. Something's really wrong. Yes. Right. Yeah, yeah. You have two other things. Um, yes, I can't remember what they were now. Oh, so. sorry. I got you off track. <laughs> one, of the, uh, the, one of them was, I think, um, oh, that's right. The, I think, I mean, what you're saying is, you know, the, the Sunday school thing, it is about just believing in Jesus. But uh, the problem with that statement is, in one sense, it's true. It's, it's true in the, it's, it's the word just is, 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 is the, the English language, we use that in two different ways. It is just believe in Jesus in the sense that there is no other option. 
Uh, one of my more provocative pieces of pastoral advice was to a guy who came to me and said, I've got this problem. I know you're going to tell me it's to trust in Jesus. Can you give me something else? I said, yes, go and get a bottle of whiskey and get drunk. And he said, you know, he was, that was a rhetorical statement, by the way. And he said, you know, he, he took the point. There is, no, there is no plan B. It is just Jesus. Mm -hmm. and, um, and yet the word just, we can't take that to imply that this is somehow quick or easy. That all you've got to do is, you know, just do this as if it's an easy thing to do and you can do it and then we'll be done, this is sorted, this pastoral problem will be over. You've got to recognize that for, for it, is, it takes a lifetime of, of change, survive. Yes, and, yeah. you know, and, and as you were saying, sometimes just getting through, the, getting through the day, getting through the year, surviving, running the race, that's a, that's a challenge, that's a struggle. It's a struggle to, 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 re, to put your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ today. It'll be a struggle to do it again tomorrow with all the pressures and temptations and, uh, that life throws at you. And, and, and we, need, we need to recognize that. And then I think that leads on to the third thing I was going to say, which was uh, you know, try, and, try and, as, as much as you can to put yourself in a, in a community context where there are people around you who are pointing you to Christ. That's good. Mm -hmm. So Hebrews 3, encourage one another daily. And that's in the context of, of, of a warning not to fall away, not to, to stop believing in the gospel. And, and, and part of the remedy is to be in a, in a community where people are constantly encouraging you, pointing you to the Lord Jesus Christ, right. which brings us back to where we started, which yes. is the mediation. It's, it's not a choice between community and gospel or community and the word. It's, it's about a, being in a community, having a community around you who embody that and are pointing you to that. It's a package deal. God calls a people yeah. for himself. Yes. Yeah. yeah, and if, you know, if I'm in solitary confinement, you know, then, then I'm sure I, I trust that he will give me the grace to survive. But his normative way is to put, put us in community. And, he, and even when, as when Peter was in prison, the saints were, yes. praying, yeah. were, the yeah. saints were praying yeah. for him, in, in, um, not necessarily in belief, because when he showed up, they didn't believe it. Yeah. <laughs> But but they they were thinking of him and praying for yes. him and lifting lifting him up and and I've I, I know that you've had the experiences uh, pastors people who've been going through a hard stretch uh, death in the family or medical problems yeah. and they feel genuinely sustained by the prayers of God's people yeah. even though none of them may be on the premises you know they're they, but they know they're being yeah. lifted up so it's it's. Um, it's all about God. It's all about Jesus. It's all about his word. And we trust him to sort it all out. And thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this week's edition of the All of Christ for All of Life podcast.